On the weekend of the 28th of October, the Barbican Centre in London will once again play host to the Battle of Ideas Festival. The weekend-long event will feature two days of high-level, thought-provoking public debate, and within that a variety of topics will be discussed within a variety of different formats of discussion. And what we hope to do in this mini-series is showcasing some of the topics that will be covered and those people who will be covering them. Uber is now under orders to leave. I'm Max Anderson, and this is Battlecry. not renew Uber's license that expires next week. The company put out an angry response saying, far from being open, London is closed to innovative companies. On the 22nd of September, the infamous taxi app Uber was finally stripped of its London license. Transport for London, or TFL, said that this was due to Uber showing a lack of corporate responsibility. And over three million Londoners who click on Uber as a cheaper alternative to the city's costly black cabs. And as swarms of its faithful users took to social media to voice their consternation, articles that to most people seem completely unrelated began to appear. These were not articles about the way Uber treats its employees, nor even about the culture of misogyny and sexism that is said to exist there. These articles were about feminism. Strangely enough, some articles claim that the removal of Uber would be good for women, but some claimed the exact opposite. So which is it? Or... Could it be that they're both wrong and in fact represent just one of the many, many problems with feminism in the 21st century? <laughs> I start off sounding like a robot and then I go human again. That, I, I can hear you properly now. This is Joanna Williams. I'm an author, an academic and the education editor of the online magazine Spiked. My latest book, Women Versus Feminism, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars, is out with Emerald and on October the 10th. Jo will also be speaking at this year's Battle of Ideas Festival, where she'll probably take on some of these modern-day feminists. To start off nice and easy... Uh... Before we get to that, though, I started by asking her how she defines feminism. Well, I think feminism means lots of different things to lots of different people. And the thing I'm always being pulled up on is people are always saying to me, there isn't one feminism, but there's lots of different feminisms. We have gender feminism, we have radical feminism, lesbian feminism, black feminism, and it's always used in a derogatory sense. The insult that's always held at, at people like me is white feminism. But a particularly big, at this moment in time, seems to be intersectional feminism or fourth wave feminism. And there's lots of disagreements between these types of feminisms. But the particular type of feminism, I guess, that I'm taking up in my book is the feminism that seems to dominate media discussions and particularly among young women nowadays. And I guess that is the intersectional or the fourth wave feminism. And we'll get into exactly what kind of that is at the moment. But before, is there sort of a shared ideology amongst all these different types of feminism? Well, I guess there is. And if I had to pick one, I would say it's the view that women are disadvantaged in comparison to men, that women are somehow victims and treated badly in society. And of course, historically, there was some truth in that at previous periods in time, women were denied the right to have the vote. 
They weren't able to get divorced on the same grounds as men. They weren't able to have equal access to employment. They didn't get paid the same as men. So historically, there was a real basis for this understanding that women were disadvantaged, women were oppressed in society. But of course, what's happened over the past few decades is that all the measures by which you might compare men and women, women have pretty much achieved equality. And in some circumstances, particularly education, for example, are actually doing better than than boys or men nowadays. But the problem is feminism has clung on to the narrative of disadvantage. It can't let go of that or feminism ceases to exist. So it has to look for ever more obscure sites of disadvantage and has to work ever harder to prove that women are still victims in society. And I guess that's where my beef with feminism comes in nowadays, because I don't think women are victims. And yet feminism seems intent on declaring that women are victims, even when it flies in the face of reality. And so you mentioned there that obviously the the origins of of feminism, there was a different kind of context that it came out of. I mean, it's very hard to say, but is there is there kind of a point when when you think that this changed? And then how did that lead us up into the sort of present situation that you like you say have beef with in your in your new book yeah I guess I don't think there's ever been a real golden age of feminism and I think even when you go back to the 1960s there were different types of feminism that were overlapping with each other and there'd be some positive elements and some negative elements but I guess at its best feminism was two things firstly it was a demand for equality for legal equality and for social equality with men so it was a claim that women were capable of engaging with the world in exactly the same way as men that anything men could do women could do too and I really think that was an important move and as part of that the second thing that I think was really positive about feminism in the past was that it was a demand for liberation So curfews and all the kind of moral and social conventions that said that women couldn't be sexually liberated, couldn't go out to work, couldn't, um, you know, were expected to stay at home in the kind of suburban family with the children and retreat to the domestic sphere. I think the idea of the women's liberation movement was a real kickback against those kinds of ideas. And I think what's happened, particularly over, well, I think you can trace the origins of it even to the 1960s, but a demand that women didn't want equality with men, but wanted a, a kind of special, distinct status to men. So, so a kind of recognition of difference rather than a demand for equality. And I think this recognition of difference becomes quite problematic for women when it actually ends up reinforcing some of the traditional stereotypes that we used against women. So particularly the idea of women as being um, vulnerable uh, is actually quite popular, it seems to me, in, in feminist circles nowadays and underlies the demand for things like sexual consent classes on campus. And a lot of the, these kind of campaigns will reinforce the old ideas that women are victims or victims in waiting from sexually predatory men. And uh, I think that's actually really detrimental for women. It, t- it takes us a long way from demands for equality and demands for liberation, and it reintroduces an inequality and it reintroduces a corporate protection and special measures. In this way, it would seem that this latest version of feminist thought builds on a foundation of complete and utter paradox, whereby 
these so-called feminists highlight the very thing that their predecessors tried to dismantle, an expectation of treatment by others that is entirely gender-specific. You can't say that you want to be liberated, but you also want to be looked after at the same time. I mean, you can't claim to be strong on the one hand and ask for special protections at the same time. You can't present yourself as powerful and vulnerable at the same time. And feminism today seems to want to have it both ways, but that just doesn't work. And this idea of women as vulnerable seems to underpin every single discussion that we have at the moment, even about things that don't seem to be anything to do with feminism whatsoever. London Mayor Sadiq Khan, he supports this decision, saying this morning it would be wrong to continue to license Uber if there is any way that this could pose a threat to Londoners' safety and security. Uber isn't parked for good just yet, though. They have 21 days to appeal this decision. Biana. Yet another headache for Uber. Jonathan yeah. Vigliotti in London, thank you. So if you look at the story about Uber in London, that's in the news at the moment. One thing that I think that's really horrible about the way that this discussion is playing out is women's safety is being used as a kind of political pawn to either argue for Uber or against Uber. So the argument goes that um, women are more likely to be raped if they travel in an Uber because Uber drivers haven't had all the um, saying checks and, and regulations applied to them as black cab drivers. Now, I don't know what the statistics are for how many women have been raped in Ubers, but I suspect it's not as alarmingly huge a number as we're being led to believe. I mean, if it was true that you were likely to be raped in an Uber, this would be a huge national scandal. This would be national news story. And it wasn't until the London mayor proposed this ban. But what's really sickening is that on the one hand, you've got people arguing that Uber should be banned for women's safety. But then on the other hand, the argument that Uber should be kept in London is also being played out on the grounds of women's safety. That if Uber goes, women will put themselves in more dangerous situations. They'll be more likely to walk down streets unaccompanied after dark. Uh, that they'll be more likely to take unlicensed minicabs. And do you think in the, in that way, because it's an interesting example, do you think in that way this kind of sort of uh, intersectional feminism, as you called it, do you think that it's kind of this, you know, one size fits all, that people just use it for arguments and they can sort of use it in any which way, but it's kind of just sort of retrospectively fitting something that they want and sort of being giving it this feminist label and, and by doing so it gives them some sort of supposed power over a non-feminist argument. Yeah, I think the beauty of intersectional feminism is that, in my mind, it's become really closely aligned with identity politics and I think one of the ways in which identity politics takes its purest form of expression nowadays, really, is with intersectional feminism, where women can um, profess to having kind of multiple uh, sites of disadvantage in their lives. And it kind of forces you into an identity driven one upmanship where the idea of you being disadvantaged or oppressed in a particular way kind of plays out as a key part of your identity. So anything that challenges that narrative of disadvantage and oppression appears to be um, a very existential threat to your sense of self. So people become completely vested 
in this narrative of disadvantage. And like I said, I think you, you see this playing out most acutely on university campuses where campaigns to have speakers banned, for example, no platformed people such as Jermaine Greer or Judy Bindel, people who in the past have been applauded by feminists. No one would be more surprised than Kate to hear that she has been charged with having done this. Every single feminist knows that the analysis that we have to make of society is very intricate and will take a long time. Uh, these campaigns to have such speakers banned in some ways are not really anything to do with what the speaker might or might not say, but they're much more of a, a claim for recognition for the people who are doing the no platforming, for the people who are campaigning for the safe spaces. So in that sense, you know, obviously the university campuses is a big thing. And do you think there is a there's a kind of generational difference in in the sort of idea of feminism? Is this kind of feminism something that is more likely to be taken up by the younger generations? And if so, how has that come about? I think that's definitely right. I think there really are generational differences. And I think when I speak to people of my age or women who are older than me, there is a real historical memory of a time when, uh, you know, maybe church, community, family, the workplace properly instituted rules that prevented women from behaving as they wanted to. I mean, even just very, very practical things like access to abortion, uh, access to contraception, taboos on sex before marriage really prevented women engaging in society in a way as they would have fully wanted to. So there's that kind of historical memory that then puts some of the debates about feminism today into perspective. So, I mean, if you can remember a time when you weren't able to be paid the same as a man legally for doing the same job, the fact that a girl's shoe is called Dolly Babe and a boy's shoe is called Leader, kind of seems very, very trivial by comparison. So I think for older women that there is that kind of historical memory that makes us think, what on earth are feminists jumping up and down about the name of a shoe for? And so the session you'll be speaking at at the Battle of Ideas um, asks sort of, do we all need liberating from the gender wars? Um, I think I know what your response is going to be, but but how would you respond to that question and, and how might this sort of liberation be achieved? Well, I definitely do think we need to be liberated from the gender wars. And I guess what I mean by that is the way that every aspect of life nowadays seems to be measured in terms of gender. So when we look at, say, members of parliament, pay, job opportunities, uh, schooling, exam results, it's always notched up or kind of tallied in terms of successes for men and successes for women. And I just think actually the way that most people lead their lives in families still nowadays in, in more or less traditional family units, people are not measuring successes in terms of gender. And so this is a really kind of false imposition on our lives. And I don't think it's a fair measure to judge everything in terms of successes for one gender or another. It completely 
denies individual choices that people might make about their lives or why people are making the choices that they do it just becomes a really crude measure of success that that I think is very unhelpful for, for the way people really do lead their lives but actually you know with hindsight even though it's not that long ago that I finished writing the book I think in some ways we've already moved on a little bit and it's not so much a gender wars that we need liberating from nowadays but in actual fact a kind of war on gender itself which you see playing out in kind of gender neutral school uniforms gender neutral toilets the idea that pupils at a school should be referred to as pupils rather than boys and girls and and the, the very concept of gender of being a boy or being a girl being a, a, and a boy who wants to grow up to be a man a girl who wants to grow up to be a woman rather than that being something to be proud of something to aspire towards is something that's frowned upon nowadays and that kind of upsets me because I think there's so many positive things about being a woman and so many fantastic choices available to women nowadays that the idea that we send the message to boys and girls that growing up to be a man, to be a woman is a bad thing to aspire towards. So just to, to finish on, like you say, there's a kind of, there's a war going on against gender, there's a, there's a huge amount of identity politics going on, whether it's regards to gender or race or culture, whatever the hell it is, it's happening everywhere. So with that in mind, how important are sort of debating events like the Battle of Ideas, especially in the times that we kind of find ourselves in? Well, I think they're absolutely crucial. And I think one of the best things about the Battle of Ideas for me, having been to the battle over many many years now is that it's one place where you go where I think you can really be judged and I mean that in the best possible sense you can be judged on the quality of your ideas and on the arguments that you put forward rather than being judged on the basis of who you are you're not just reduced to your biology you needn't speak as a woman as a man um, you can speak and be judged purely on the on the, the intellectual merit of, of the arguments that you're putting forward. The idea that you can go to the battle of ideas and be judged on the basis of what you say, not on the basis of who you are, is really exciting and actually very liberating too. To find out more about the festival, head over to www.battleofideas.org.uk